0: Our teaching tonight, as we continue on in our Numbers series, takes us to Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, this account of the bronze snake. And here we read the following. They, the, this is the Israelites, they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient along the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. This is God's word. And this is a symbol that some of you might actually recognize. Um, You probably can associate like what realm of life it belongs to. Does anybody know what the name of it is? Actually, shout it out if you know what it is. I did not hear it. It's called the caduceus, actually. Um, And it is a symbol that most of us associate with ambulances and hospitals and doctors and medicine and healing in general. But actually, it's often confused with something called the, I'd be really impressed if someone could get this one. It's called the rod of Asclepius. And Asclepius was the physician's son of the Greek god Apollo. And it has come over the years to be associated as a symbol of healing that we still use today in the 21st century. And I've looked into different reasons for the etymology of why is that thing a symbol of healing? And I've heard all sorts of what I think are bogus explanations for what it might be. I mean, if you've read the Bible before and you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're familiar with the text that we just read. I mean, come on, let's let's be real here for a second. It's well documented in ancient societies that cultures borrowed mythology from other cultures. And you know who predates the Greeks by about a thousand years? Moses and the Israelites, and Numbers chapter 21. I am 100% convinced that this symbol has some kind of etymological history attached to Numbers 21. What's going on in Numbers 21? The Israelites have now been wandering around in the wilderness for about 40 years. 40 years out of Egypt, they have been denied entrance for a variety of reasons into the Promised Land. Aaron actually died, their high priest died in the last chapter. Uh, We have a new generation of Israelites, but an old problem with the Israelites. The problem that we've been saying week after week is they have discontentment with life, distrust in their God-given leaders, and disbelief in God's promises. And it creates problems in your life. It still does today for God's people in the wilderness. This generation is arguably a little bit better. But you know what? I do want to say, after having just set that point three straight weeks in a row, I do want to say, maybe I'm not being fair enough to the Israelites. Because actually, the way the narrative is set up, there is a legitimate question of whether or not the adversity and the unexpected problems that you face in the wilderness are, in fact, better and superior to the tyranny and oppression that we had back in Egypt. I mean, it is kind of an open question. It's not a slam-dunk answer. It is better. It is better, but it's not completely black and white. One of the ways that I would describe that is the time in the wilderness, because of the uncertainty, because of the unknown obstacles, it's a little bit like Moving out of enslavement in Egypt and and moving into the wilderness is a little bit like addiction recovery in the sense that the moment you decide, rock bottom, I'm done with my addiction, whatever the substance is, whether it's drugs or alcohol or gambling or sex or whatever it is, you don't immediately move. When you say, I'm done, you don't immediately move from enslavement to promised land, you know, and everything's perfect from that point on. In order to get from enslavement to promised land, you have to voluntarily go through a wilderness. You have to go on a journey that is filled with withdrawals, and it is an uphill slog every step of the way, right? So there is the question of whether or not it's even worth it to venture out in the wilderness, and it always is, but it's not easy. That's the thing is the wilderness of life is never actually easy. And furthermore, what we also learn is, and the Israelites are learning this, the wilderness is like a little slice of hell at times, and yet because it's a slice of hell, hell can always get worse. The bottom can always drop further, and when you lose your faith in the wilderness, all the problems that you were experiencing actually get far worse. The Israelites are are figuring that out right now. Again, I said this generation is arguably a little improved from their parents. Nonetheless, the same old complaint and grumbling that they learned from their parents is back again. Remember what it was? This is bad food. This just isn't this miraculous cuisine that you're serving us every day. It's been like 40 years. We're about done with this. And they say, they spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread. There's no water. We detest this miserable food. To be clear, the miserable food that they detest is this stuff called manna. It is, so far as we can tell, sort of like a sweet resin that accumulates every day on the ground and on some plants. Um, And it is uh, prepped and baked in a variety of different ways by the Israelites. But the main point for us is that it is miraculous. It is there every day and it sustains their lives. For them to say, we don't have any water and we don't have any food, is like when you and I look into the closet and say, I don't have anything to wear. Like nonsense. You might not like what you got to wear. You might be getting a little bored of the things that you have to wear. But the idea that you don't have anything to wear is complete and utter nonsense and delusion. You've got plenty to get dressed and go out and take care of what actually is important in life. And the Israelites do too. And one of the lessons that we learn herein then is that grumbling is so pervasive amongst human beings that you can literally drop us down into the middle of paradise and we will find something to complain about. And I know that's true because it's happened. It happened to our ancestors, Adam and Eve. And they had, you know, there's no sickness, there's no death, there's no pain or suffering in any way. There's like literally one little command that they have, which is don't eat from that relatively attractive tree in the middle of the garden. And what does the serpent come along and do? He says, see, that's, that's not good enough. You deserve better. You should have access. That's probably the best tree. You don't know. That's probably the best tree. And God is trying to take away the thing in life that you need in order to actually be happy. You know what that is? It's lies. It's venom. When serpents attack you, They don't maul you and you die by bloodshed. That's what bears and lions and sharks do. What poisonous serpents do is they inject something into you that becomes an unquenchable, insatiable appetite and fire. Some people will look at this text. A lot of modern readers will look at this text one time and say that's completely unjust. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. The punishment of poisonous snakes coming after people who are, all they're doing, the crime is they're just grumbling. Scholars of the Bible who have read this hundreds and hundreds of times, you know what they'll tell you? They'll say it is completely apropos because God is telling the Israelites what is going on with you spiritually right now. See, what's happening physically with snake bites and venom and the internal unquenchable fire and fever that you're facing, that is exactly what's happening with you with your discontentment and your grumbling. There's an extraordinarily practical insight in this for God's people. If you're a Christian, you get an insight here that I honestly don't think the rest of the, like the secular world has total access to. It's that the nature of human fallenness, the nature of sin, it makes you never satisfied. It's never, this life is never quite good enough. You always can find something wrong and you're living with this semi-inaccurate feeling of injustice in life. And so the Israelites, they are a grumbling. And again, we learned something. At the center of every human being is this dislocation that is like a poison that generates a fever like serpent poison does. And you know what happens? If you get really feverish, some of you have been here before, if you get really feverish, you start to get delusional. And that's exactly right. You're not perceiving reality at that point. The fever coming from the poison That Satan can inject into us with lies, it is an all-consuming heat, it's internal discomfort, it's absolute delusion. Every human has this natural condition that theologically we call it original sin. But losing your faith in God's promises and grumbling against your circumstances only aggravates that condition. And again, it's the punishment here, the discipline is perfectly appropriate in that God is sending fiery snakes. Now, actually the word that's used here that describes these fiery snakes, one of the words is it's seraph in Hebrew or plural is seraphim. Now, some of you might even recognize, wait a second, seraphim. Have I heard that word before? It's also used in the Bible to describe those supernatural six-winged, fiery angelic messengers from God. That's not what this is. In fact, you could even translate this potentially as dragon, but it's not because we know contextually these are venomous snakes. But the idea is there. There is something that is being allowed and sent by God that is fiery. Fiery serpents, not because they're on fire, but because they release something in you that is this unquenchable fire. It is a fever that can lead to death. And by the way, that's what poisonous serpents do to us. Satan is trying to stoke you into a discontentment. He's trying to set you on fire now and eternally. And fortunately, the Israelites repent, which is exactly the right response. And this is somewhat noteworthy because the Israelites haven't been very good at this. Moses has interceded with them before in this book, but so far as we can tell, this is the first time that they are like genuinely, humbly, Turning and saying, We're sorry to God. We're sorry to you. Moses, would you please intercede on our behalf? And specifically, what they say in this section is, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. They're learning in the wilderness. That's about the best that you can hope for. When you're learning in the wilderness of life, that's progress. Don't shoot for perfection. In the wilderness of life, the only thing that is perfect is your Lord and Savior. Adjust your expectations for the wilderness. The only thing perfect in your life, when you're beating yourself up, what are you expecting? Perfection from yourself in the wilderness? The only thing perfect for your life in the wilderness is your Lord and Savior. But to the degree that you submit to him in time, you will make progress, absolutely. And the Israelites seem to be making progress. And the Lord hears Moses' prayer on their behalf, and he offers a very interesting antidote to the venom of the snakes that Moses was supposed to fashion a bronze snake, put it up on, maybe it was Moses' staff, but up on some kind of pole so that all of them could see. And then when anyone was bitten by the snake and they looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now, I'm gonna tell you what, that is a very odd sounding solution to the problem that the Israelites were facing. And we're gonna unpack that more in a couple of minutes. But for right now, two things to keep in mind. First thing is, One, it worked. And number two, this is what scholars of the Bible refer to as a type of Christ. Have you ever heard that term before? Typology is Old Testament symbols given by God placed in these narratives that only find their fulfillment when you read through the rest of the Bible and they are foreshadowings of what the coming Messiah was going to come and do. Uh, Now, sometimes it's a little speculative as to whether or not something in the Old Testament is, in fact, a type of Christ. But when the New Testament flat out says it is, then you know for sure. And what did we read in our first lesson just a couple minutes ago? Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, of course, it's still a unique symbol. And we might be scratching our heads saying like, okay, if a serpent is in some respects an image of sin, because the serpent brought and tempted sin into humanity, right? And if Jesus is sinless, but if Jesus on the pole, if this is all sort of a type of the work that Jesus is doing, how does Jesus relate to the snake? And the only way I can explain that, or the best way that I can explain that, is use what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. This is the best explanation." God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know what that passage doesn't say? It doesn't say Jesus became sinful. If Jesus was sinful, he never would have gone, he would have been way too selfish to go to the cross to die for everybody else's sins. If Jesus was sinful while he was on the cross, he wouldn't say things like, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He wouldn't be that, that, that thoughtless and sacrificial. It doesn't say Jesus became sinful. It says Jesus became sin. What that means is he took on the legal status of guilt, the legal status of sin. God treated him as though he was injected with all of the poison of sin that you and I have in our lives. And the moment we lift our eyes and look to him for a solution, he releases his righteousness as medicine that cures all of our woes makes us alive, makes us alive again. All our sins are placed on him as he accepted a fever as hot as hell in our place because he loved us and wanted to give us eternal life. Anyone who raises their eyes, anyone who recognizes what Jesus did on that cross will be healed and will live forever. What does it all mean? I got three quick application points for you. First one's very quick. Is your bread enough? So we've been talking each week. We brought up this issue of grumbling because it's a major theme of the Israelites in the wilderness of life. And they're grumbling about all sorts of things, but specifically contextually in our text, they're grumbling about that food again, that manna. If you fast forward to John chapter 6, you get to a pretty famous section where Jesus is teaching on what is called the bread of life discourse. And he starts out by saying, just as back in the wilderness under Moses manna, bread from heaven, fell to the ground and it sustained the Israelites' lives, so also I am like bread from heaven that God has sent down to earth that when you consume me, I will sustain your life. Jesus says, I am the manna from heaven. I'm the ultimate manna from heaven. And actually he takes it a step further in Matthew's gospel when he says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The bread of life is Christ and his word. The manna from heaven that sustains us in the wilderness of life is Christ and his word. Now, when you put that point together with the Israelites grumbling about their bread, you come to a really interesting application point. The application point is clearly this. Is the bread that God gives you today enough for you? Is God's word enough for you to be happy? In the wilderness of life? Is it sufficient? Is what Jesus has already accomplished years ago and everything that Jesus has promised to you in the future, is Jesus and his word enough for you to be content and be happy in an admittedly fallen world? I have worked with plenty of Christians over the course of the years for whom it was not. And they were angry and they were bitter and they were resentful and God's I don't know how to put it other than God's word was not enough. They wanted, I want to, I need a miracle. I need an experience. I need a win. You know what? I get it because I got flesh too. And I want all those things too. But I also know that that mentality will land you in self-pity and grumbling. Eat the miracle bread. Just eat the miracle bread daily. That will sustain you, and then one day, you will cross the threshold into life that really is living. So when you're grumbling, ask yourself the question about, is what God currently has given me and what he's promised me, is that enough really for me? Secondly, staring at your serpents. All right, so from a psychotherapeutic standpoint, this is an incredibly brilliant point baked into the text If you don't know, almost all schools of psychotherapy have learned that if you can get people to voluntarily confront the things in life that they are truly afraid of, it's curative. They will get better. If something in life is terrifying you, your natural flesh's response is to recoil and to avoid and to run away. And there's certain things in your life that you're afraid of that you're currently doing this with. You just avoid it, and you run away from it, and you escape from it. By the way, the technique is called voluntary exposure or exposure therapy. If you can get people to confront what they are afraid of, it doesn't necessarily make them not afraid. What it does is it makes them brave. It makes them stronger. For the Israelites, it totally does not seem completely intuitive that when you are afraid and sick that you would look at the image of the very thing that you were afraid of, even as there's other things that you're afraid of that are still trying to bite you. And yet by God's design, that's exactly the way he programmed it. God's cure for the thing that Israel was afraid of is voluntary exposure fueled by confidence in God. God's cure for the things that you're afraid of in life is voluntary exposure fueled by confidence in your God. Now, there's two different levels on which this works, and they're both really practical and helpful. The first one is the basic fears that you have in life. And we all have them, whether we admit them or are willing to come to terms with them or not. We all have certain things that would nearly paralyze us in fear. And for some of us, it's social phobias, and some of us, it's personal insecurities, and some of us, it's fear of rejection or fear of failure. Uh, When I was young, and I was wrestling through my obsessive-compulsive disorder, which typically in OCD, there's a fear of contamination and fear of sickness and that kind of stuff. And I had all that. And um, one of the first books that I ever read on the topic was called The Boy Who Couldn't Stop Washing, which for me was an issue too, hand washing constantly. And uh, the main, the primary case study in the book was a young man who had a fear of, he's OCD, he has a fear of contamination. And specifically for him, the way it manifested was in things that were like sticky. He felt contaminated and paralyzed by things, anything that he touched, that was uh, sticky. And so you know what the therapy was for him? Doctors getting him to voluntarily go along with this, because that's important, what he had to do, his treatment was, when he went in and, and, and did this weekly, he would take a wooden spoon, he would dip it into a jar of honey, he had to pull the spoon out, hold it upside down, and watch it. And it would run down the spoon, and it would run down his hand, and he had to look at it, and he had to feel it, and they were told he had to describe it with his words, and he wouldn't do it at first when they eventually encouraged him and psyched him into doing it. After several treatments, guess what? His anxiety started to go away. His fear of contamination started to be destigmatized. Voluntary exposure, accompanied and assisted by somebody that you trust, that you know is in control of the overall situation, cured him. Okay. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I don't know what your snake is. Every single person in this room has a different one. I don't know what your, your uh, honey wooden spoon is. What I do know for sure is that in the wilderness of, your, of life, much of your healing will come by knowing God is in control, grabbing his hand, denying your flesh, staring at and walking straight towards the thing that you're most afraid of. This isn't simply just about facing your fears, by the way. It's also about facing your sins. This is about repenting of your sins, too. If you notice with the Israelites, healing from the consequences of their sins was what? what they, were, they were completely discontented. And who do they blame? Verse 5 says they grumbled against God and against Moses. And then in verse 7, it says they repented to God and to Moses. And you know what that means? The healing of your consequences of your sins must start by looking at and acknowledging your sins. Going back to the addiction example, you cannot be an addict and expect to overcome your addiction without ever acknowledging that you're an addict. It can't happen. It won't happen. Spiritual healing cannot occur unless you own your sins. You can't kill your snakes. You can't be cured from your snake bites unless you look at those snakes and you take the antidote. It's God encouraging us towards repentance as the Israelites did, and they found healing and life. And speaking of antidote, the final point, the most important point, looking up to find life. I think maybe the most brilliant thing in this entire text is the simplicity by which the people received the medicine. Did you catch how it was? How did they get healed? Let me ask you this. I know you know you know it was a bronze snake on a pole, but what did God ask them to do? Were they supposed to go over to the pole, climb the pole, and touch the bronze snake? Is that what they had to do? Or maybe something a little bit more religious sounding. Run over to the pole, bow down in front of the pole, and recite some kind of magical incantation before the pole. Is that what they had to do? You know, if that was the case, either one of those, I don't think it would be fair because... They're sick. They're in a weakened state. Some of them might be in near paralysis. Some of them would be more qualified to climb and touch a bronze snake on a pole than others would. God doesn't deal in qualifications. Their saving is not going to come by their own doing. The singular thing that they have to do is lift their eyes and look. Lift your eyes and look at the image that the mediator has created for you. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live, and this is the exact same way that you and I get healed from our sins. The sin and guilt of every person that has ever lived was lifted up high on a cross as Jesus loved us enough to climb voluntarily up that pole, bear mankind's sin publicly because he would rather face hell than lose us from God when you understand that that's how you're saved, when you stare at that image long enough, it'll do three things for you. Number one, it will relieve all the inflammation of your past guilt because it's already paid for. You have no reason to feel guilty anymore. Number two, you will become extraordinarily optimistic because God has given you life by which soon enough you are going to cross the threshold into a land flowing with milk and honey, into the promised land. And three, it will make you strong so that you can face the present wilderness. This text actually fits quite perfectly into the Advent season because it addresses one of the abundant weaknesses of humanity, that it's perhaps especially abundant during this particular time of year, which is discontentment and wishing life was different. And it's also perfect for Advent because it teaches the simple truth of Christmas, which is that forgiveness and healing come down from God like manna to the ground. And it's not by our doing. It is through the gift of God's Son, Jesus. And all we have to do is lift up our eyes and be healed. Let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, many of us are struggling right now with some sadness and some temptation for grumbling, and just deep down inside some discontentment. Lift our eyes to you and your love, your sacrifice, and your promised land. We give thanks for our daily bread, and we look forward to our eternal banquet. In your name we pray, amen.